know, music is is a very powerful tool, and um, I'm I'm just glad to be a part of it. I mean, I'm just a little little so bit part of it of it in a very you know very big world that we live in. Welcome to Grand Canyon Speaks. My name is Ranger Melissa, and my name is Ranger Jonah. Hey, Jonah, who is this episode with? Yeah, so in this episode, I talked with Aaron White. He is an award-winning and Grammy-nominated musician. He also plays and builds the Native American flute, which is what he did when he came out here to the canyon. Yeah, and this interview is for your ears only. It was actually rained out in person um, inside this area. We lost power that day for several hours and had to use flashlights to illuminate the space that we recorded with Aaron at. Um, his music, though, is absolutely beautiful and mesmerizing. It in, He doesn't even need the electricity for his acoustics. Um, but hearing about his life story while talking to you, it felt like it came straight from a rock and roll magazine. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Aaron also does the theme music for this very podcast series. Mm-hmm. So we were really honored to have him come speak as well. So without further ado, Aaron White. Welcome, everybody, to Grand Canyon Speaks. Uh, this is one of the more unique programs that we've ever done. Um, in We were unfortunately stopped from our regular program time uh, due to lightning, so we are currently sitting in a living room uh, doing this recording. And we're doing this recording because we have such an amazing uh, presenter today. Uh, we are talking to the Dene musician and artist, flute maker, among many other things, uh, Mr. Aaron White. Hello, good evening. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming out and doing this. It is certainly the weirdest of the ones that we've done so far, but you know, I think we're gonna have fun with it. Uh, I think we just gotta take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, I guess my first question is, where are you from? Well, I'm from, um, I'm from the Northern Ute Reservation. It's where my, where my mother's from, but I'm also from Canton, Arizona. My father is um, Diné, uh, Navajo. My mother is Northern Ute. But I grew up on and off the reservation in uh, Northern California, uh, the Bay Area. I was born in Oakland, California. Grew up in Niles, California, which was home to the first Hollywood. And um, I just recently found out <laughs> I grew up right across the street from the Charlie Chaplin Studios, where they filmed one of their silent pictures called The Champion, which was a black and white. Um, it wasn't. Uh, it was a silent picture uh, back in 1915, I think it was. It was a Charlie Chaplin film, but we lived right across the studios, right across the road. And you never got into filmmaking. That yeah, never happened. Never you never got into making music. talkies. <laughs> no. How about that? Um, so you uh, were a touring musician for uh, 13 plus years. Yes. Um, and uh, so how did you first get into music? Did you grow up with it? Did it Was it always around? Of course, in the Bay Area, I imagine you had some music around. Um, yeah, I, I grew up um, as far back as I can remember. Um, I was always um, doing plays, um, doing live performances. Um, I did one of my first performances with uh, 
a gentleman by the name of Roy Rogers, who had a horse named Trigger. He came to our, our school and we did a performance for him in Roosevelt, Utah. And um, this was near, near the Ute Reservation. And um, I did a lot of performances, you know, as a kid with uh, plays and things like that. But music, as far as I can remember, has always been um, a big part of my life. So when you were growing up, was that primarily flute music or, or uh, guitar, uh, piano? What was, the, what was your introduction instrument-wise? It was a little bit of guitar. I remember taking um, guitar lessons from a gentleman when I was probably like around six or seven years old. Um, I first learned basic guitar and, and how to use my voice. Uh, I remember the first song I ever did was probably... How much is that doggy in the window? Which is an old, you know, American classic. And then I was doing a uh, song by, them, by a gentleman named Glenn Campbell. Uh, Galveston was a, a piece that I had done. And my mother used to take me to a restaurant in Roosevelt, and I would sing for tips when I was just a little kid. So you really have been working as a musician since the early days. Yeah, I never saw any of that money. <laughs> yeah, where did all that happen to go? Um, so you've always grown up with music, and, and, and then, of course, uh, your, your main touring group uh, was Burning Sky, right? Yeah, um, my first professional, I guess, gig was when I was in the military. I was 17, and I had a band called um, Excalibur. And I just recently had been in contact with an old drummer friend who was part of the group. And we were a military band that was based out of Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. And we played at all the EM clubs, um, Kaneohe Marine Base, Pearl Harbor, Hickamire Force Base, Barbers Point, around the island of Oahu. Then we also did some clubs in Waikiki and Pearl City and around the island. And uh, we were only like 18 years old. We were playing in a, in a rock band. Having and, a good time, I imagine. Yeah, it was, it was great. And the Hard to beat his that. name was uh, Homero Chavez. And I just, you know, he got a hold of me through Facebook and found out he made a career out of music as well. So out of all the members of the band, two of us, you know, chose to have music as a career. Are you expecting a future collaboration to come out soon? <laughs> um, I, we talked about it. You know, he's out in LA. We um, work with uh, a lot of different groups and recording artists, and and um, you know, we just kind of compared where we were at, and we met in um, in Southern California. We were actually on a vacation going back to Hawaii, and so we stopped in and had dinner with him and his wife. So, kind of a little bit of a reunion. But you know, I was looking at old photos that he had. Of us, and I mean, we were just kids, you know, just, just rocking out, just you know, having a great time, and you know, serving in the military as well. So, well, so you uh, you're serving in the military. You, you're starting with these sort of rock and roll bands in, in in the beginning, and and where does that? How does that develop from there? What's the next step? Or well, I had always played, you know, music. Like I said, um, you know, uh, learned from a lot of different people. And um, being in the Bay Area, you know, we were always surrounded by music. I remember seeing the Escovito family playing at this place called Lake Merritt in downtown Oakland. Uh, Escovito family being Sheila E. 
and her family, you know, her father was a pretty well-known musician and, um, you know, was playing with uh, different groups. Malo, which was a very big band at the time in the 70s, um, you know, we'd see a lot of different groups, you know, that were up and coming. Um, some of the bands that came out of the Bay Area, like Journey, um, Santana, um, Greg Chiquiso from Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship, um, just so many different people, you know, in the Bay Area, such a big influence. You know, we'd have bands come to our high school during lunch and they would play, you know, for the students. And one of those bands um, in the beginning was a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Brad Gillis, uh, who went on to play with Night Ranger and Rubicon. And, um, you know, just a lot of, we're, I was always surrounded by, by music or musicians. And, and great musicians at that. Yeah, I mean, you know, being there when people, you know, were first starting out, you know, it's a pretty, pretty big influence. So how, how did they influence you? Did they influence you from a, a, a touring life perspective as you sort of saw them develop and grow or, yeah, or from a musicianship? You know, seeing them performing and, and you know, them, you know, having showmanship and, and uh, good songs, you know, and, and things like that. Well, good songs do tend yeah. to help. <laughs> Makes the mu- music process a little bit easier. Um. So, you know, you grew up with all of this different influence. What was the kind of music that you were listening to? I listened to everything. I mean, I listened to everything from Tower of Power, you know, to um, Weather Report, you know, to Montrose, Sammy Hagar, um, you know, Black Sabbath, ACDC, uh, to, you know, growing up, my father listened to a lot of country, you know, Waylon Jennings, you know, um, Johnny Cash, Elvis. I mean, just all, I've, no matter where I was, I was always surrounded, like I said, with music. Music was just something that was always there. So did you tend to connect with more one sort of genre more than another? Or it Probably was rock just... music, you know, was, you know, you know, a big thing. And being a singer, you know, fronting a band at, at the age of 18, you know, it was an experience, you know, facing people and you know, we played at some pretty historic places, the old Haleiwa Theater in Haleiwa on the North Shore of Oahu, um, opening up, you know, for for different people, you know, that came to the island or, you know, playing in, in clubs, you know, where places would just be packed, you know, with people. There'd be two or three bands playing in one night. And in Hawaii, the clubs back then, you know, would stay open until four in the morning. You know, and the legal drinking age was 18. So people who graduated from high school on the mainland came to Hawaii, you know, to celebrate their, <laughs> their you know, graduations. You have a bunch of, you know, crazy 18-year-olds, you know, and then when the clubs would close down at 4 in the morning, people would pour into the streets, you know, and stuff. It was just a pretty amazing time. Wow. Yeah, I'd say. You know. I'm not sure, uh, not sure where you can find that these days. <laughs> um, so... What uh, what are your next that that the group that was playing in Oahu that was named Excalibur Excalibur and and then where does where does Excalibur go when does that start to phase into the next Well, we all group we all were you know finishing our our military service so you know we we all went our separate ways and then I did a lot of solo things I mean I was playing. Um, so, so at the end of Excalibur, yeah. you knew that yeah. you were going to be a musician. This is yeah. what you were doing. Definitely. 
You were filling the clubs till 4 a.m. Yeah. And, it, you know, we went, I moved back to the mainland after being in Hawaii for a while. And then um, I got home to the Ute Reservation. And um, I just started doing local gigs, uh, working with the Performing Arts Center in Salt Lake City. Uh, they had a big celebration for songwriters and things like that. So I would go out, you know, and it was a two-hour bus ride. So I would take my guitar and go out to Salt Lake City and, and do gigs, you know, every now and then with um, festivals. And then I would go back, you know, and I knew that staying on the reservation, there wouldn't be any opportunity, you know, to put or play music live or anything. So I um, moved to Salt Lake and started just gigging, you know, around different places, playing places for tips and things. And then I moved from there to Oklahoma City, where my dad was living, and I was playing music there. I had a couple of bands, you know, that were, you know, just kind of just bouncing around, you know, playing music and everything. Then I moved to Southern California, uh, back to Northern California, and um, then I moved back to Arizona, um, where my father was from, and that's where I met my wife, Marilyn. And uh, she actually got me my first solo gig, you know, in Arizona. Oh, wow. So where was the, where was the first place that you played in Arizona? It was up on the Hopi Reservation. And my wife was uh, um, a producer slash... Um, she had connections. Person, yeah. You know, she had a, a gentleman with Jacob Coyne that she had worked with. She was doing productions for for um, uh, models and, and mod she was doing some modeling herself down in Phoenix. And um, she had done a production um, called It's Our Time. And so that was kind of a big production that she had done. And she had moved back to, to Northern Arizona from Phoenix. And we met and she- It worked out. Like my music that I did. So she got me this gig through her friend, Jacob Coyne. And then from there, you know, it just, you know, went off and, you know, we did our thing. <laughs> right on. <laughs> um, so during this time, are you still just playing acoustic guitar? Have you started to play the flute or has that no, no, come we, into the picture? We, um, we got married and, you know, we had kids and, um, you know, I was just kind of milling around. We moved to Flagstaff and, um, you know, I was milling around. And I had gotten a job working for Coca-Cola Bottling Company. And I had been playing on the side up on the reservation in Chinle, Arizona. And I was playing in Gallup, New Mexico at, at some of the clubs, just doing like some solo acoustic stuff. And then I was playing with a few people. And then when I finally just got tired of um, working the corporate life, I moved, you know, I was going back and forth between Flagstaff and Chin Lee, and um, I decided that, you know, if I'm gonna do this, I'm, I'm gonna do it. So I went and got some money together, did a demo, and had an idea of creating music around the Native American flute. So I had uh, mentioned to a friend of mine what I was trying to do, and so he had um, directed an individual to my to myself named uh, Kelvin Bizzalani, who was a flute player. And so he came over to my house and, and we sat and I had him play some lines on the flute and kind of try to figure it out, figured out, you know, what 
keys that the Native American flute could possibly um, be played in, along with, with um, guitar accompaniment. And so we did a demo, and then we uh, went to a place called Mud Shark Studios in Flagstaff, and we cut a two-song demo, a vocal song, um, and a uh, flute song. And so um, there was a vocal song I had written a while back that um, I had recorded, and I thought, you know, it would probably be kind of neat to do it with, with the Native American flute. So the flute he had was kind of based between an F sharp and an, and an E minor. And so I figured out the chord progression and what the scale was for a pentatonic scale. And then we went in the studio and, and we did this recording. And a friend of, um, a friend of ours, a mutual friend, had heard the demo and took it down to Canyon Records and had played it for a gentleman named Robert Doyle. And we ended up getting a record deal from it. Wow. Wow. Um, so, you know, I, I think that leads straight into, uh, you know, whether it be that demo or, or the work that you would go on to create later, what does the process for you look like to create um, that kind of music, to create music incorporating the Native American flute? Well, for me, melodies, you know, always seem to come, you know, naturally. And hearing each note, you know, that's played, whatever scale a flute is in, um, you know, I, I always kind of imagine, you know, and can feel it and hear it and and able to express it, you know, in, in any sort of, you know, mode or shape or form musically. And um, the first record we did was the self-titled Burning Sky and all the... Um, all the songs on that, you know, basically were based around the guitar. So the flutes, the percussion, and um, all of the music that would, that had been done on the first recording had basically been coming from, from uh, we did a couple of tours um, in California. We played it, the first gig we did was the Native American Music Festival. And the first gig we did as a duo was at this thing called Stars in the Desert in Tuba City. And then we were asked to do the music festival in Oakland, California. And then we, while we were in Oakland, we got a call from somebody because no one had really heard music at that time in 1992. The only other person I think that was doing music similar was probably our Carlos Nakai with guitar and flute. And so we flew down to Malibu and we did this festival up at this place called Wright's Ranch, which was um, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's place, the, our, the architect. And so we were there and uh, I think we had done that first show was with uh, Melissa Manchester and, and a couple of other um, artists that were pretty big in the 70s and 80s. And... Um, we met a gentleman there by the name of Michael Bannister, who at the time had just finished a recording with um, with a gentleman from a, a band called the Plimsolls, and um, he was from Buffalo, New York, and uh, the gentleman's name was Peter Case, and um, the Plimsolls were kind of a, a big group, sort of like a '90s new wave you know, sure. type of, or an, an '80s new wave band, and. Um, we met him at the festival 
and it was just me and Calvin that were just playing. So it was just flute and guitar. And then this gentleman just happened to be moving Flagstaff. So we met him and, and he was a really good drummer. I mean, he's, he had played with Lucinda Williams, you know, he played with a lot of, a lot of well-known musicians. And so we got together with him and I showed him the songs that we were doing and we added the percussions to it. And that's basically how the trio of Burning Sky was formed, you know. Right. Just, you know, from traveling around meeting people. <laughs> wow. That's how all great things happen, right? There yeah. needs to be a little yep. element of spontaneity. Yeah. Um, so when you're actually, you know, you, you've got this group together, how do you guys begin to write your music? Well, like I said, a lot of it was based around the guitar. So I would come up with the melodies and and the different changes, and we would just add the flute, you know, and kind of direct the flute player through through. Um, now, was this the same? What we would have to each do each time, or did they use a different? Flute oh, I was using different flutes, um, you know, A minor flutes and um, Bs, and you know, different different modes of of you know anything that was that the native flute, you know, was based off, you know, in those pentatonic scales. And so we just began to just create. I mean, we did the first record, Burning Sky. We did the second record, which was um, Blood of the Land. And so we had, we had done, did um, six recordings with Canyon Records. Uh, Burning Sky, Blood of the Land, Creation, um, Simple Man, um, Spirits in the Wind, and um, we had done, we did another one for a bigger label called Ryko Disc, which was Enter the Earth. And we had a lot of, a lot of uh, influences, you know, that, that came along with uh, Spirits in the Wind. We, uh, we had John Densmore from The Doors who did some percussions on it and did a spoken word um, on the recording. And that was the one that we were nominated for a Grammy for. And then Enter the Earth, we did with uh, Jesse Valenzuela from the Jim Blossoms. And so he did some guitar tracks. And um, the second recording, Blood of the Land, we had re-recorded a song that was written by Bruce Coburn called Indian Wars. And we ended up doing that with him um, at the Verde Valley Show with Jackson Brown and, and a bunch of other musicians. Wow. So, you know, we, we were starting to really build you know, momentum of, of playing, you know, in a lot of different places. And collaborating. Yeah, with and collaborating these, with a lot of different people. Know, incredible. And musicians. what was kind of cool about the the Jackson Brown Festival was Jackson had heard our, our music and Bruce Coburn had told him about us and thought it would be great for us to open up the festival. And then after we got done with that, Jackson Brown ended up coming to us afterwards and offered his studio in Santa Monica and gave us like three days of free recording time, <laughs> you know, at his, at his studio. Wow. So we did that, you know, and ended up recording a bunch of stuff at his place. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I bet. Um, so in terms of uh, the music that's on these albums, um, you know, how much did improvisation play? I mean, you're talking a lot about how you needed to form these songs around uh, the flute around these pentatonic scales, which uh, for those on the recording that may not know what that means, it's sort of a, a simplification of a major scale or a minor scale. Um, it, it, uh, it allows for a lot of different variety because uh, the notes um, flow together very easily. 
Um, so, so you are writing these songs. Um, does improvisation come into your songwriting at this point, or do you know I think, what you're going to do? Think the walk improv, in the studio and then put it down. Yeah, I think the improv happens before. You know, because I mean, you're gathering ideas. You know, like I'll sit at home and I'll, I'll tune my guitar to standard tuning, or I'll tune it to maybe a different tuning, open tuning, drop tuning, drop D, open G, um, even doing slide work. You know, with slide guitar, and I'll just come up with all these melodies. You know, and and just work, and I can hear what the flute is going to do with with the chords that I'm playing. So. I'm basically feeling my way around it first um, in the writing process, and then I'll come in with the flute after I lay down my guitar tracks, and I'll just kind of direct, you know, if I'm working with another flute player, this is what I would like for you to do. You know, I would like you to maybe play very slow here, let it drag out, play a little bit of fat, fast here, maybe um, draw these lines and weave in and out, you know, of the notes and and things like that. So you know when I'm when I'm creating the music, I, I I hear it all in my head first, right? You know, and then I then I start um, kind of just maybe improvising with myself. Certainly. And then by the time we get to the studio, I already know what I need to do. And just lay it down. And hopefully the people that I'm working Jackson with, Brown's yeah, exactly, I won't be wasting <laughs> studio time or nothing. And the people that I'm working with, hopefully. You know they'll they'll um, consciously connect with that, you know, and stuff, and you know it'll it'll all come together, right? And I'm sure that takes a lot of trust between the band, yeah. To have this yeah, sort yeah, of cohesive yep. unit and to yeah, you have to direction. you have to really um, feel it. You know, you have to feel your way through it, and and um, it's almost like you just have to become, you have to, you know, you got to have to have the same vision, you know, in, in the recording process. There was a recording we did, um, which was the third record, and you have, we did a, um, a piece for a, uh, for a winery in Santa Barbara, California, called Zaca Mesa Winery. They wanted us to do a theme of how they grew grapes. So they grow grapes using earth, um, wind, sun, rain. So there were four elements that were involved with it. And so we created this this thing, um, this this um, tune, like a like a bouquet of songs, mm. you know, we, we put together the first intro, which was earth. So that was the first time I ever used the synthesizer. Oh, wow. So I used the synthesizer to, to sync everybody together. And then we started with the flute after with the synthesizer, then brought in the percussions, then brought in the guitar. And then after we finished that piece, um, we did a piece called wind. And so with that, we opened up with just the flute and um, brought in the, the percussions. And then I added some bass lines and then guitar. And then we did um, um, rain. And so we created uh, a piece that would have to do with, you know, a storm or 
or something, you know, that would be a representation of, of water and, and moisture and things like that. And then we did sun, you know, which was basically about growth and nourishment and, and all this stuff. And we put these four pieces together and we did like uh, 15 minutes of each song, you know. And I mean, we just went with this whole theme and, and we played it for the company. They loved it and they were selling it at their winery. You know, for their oh, customers wow. and stuff. So it was kind of a, it was a commissioned, you know, piece to do. And then the record label ended up releasing it, and that was probably one of our second best-selling recordings. You know, wow, and and all from the the growing of grapes. Yeah, it's the beginning of any great story. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, so when you're putting this feel into the music, you know, you're sort of looking to articulate the rain or, or the sun or the, the soil or the earth what w what is the the process for that is it you know just sitting down and saying how can i represent this or is there a a more detailed sort of approach um i just i think um when i'm doing that the themes that I come up with you know, with the music, you know, like um, what, what recording were you guys listening to? All of them. <laughs> yeah, we listened to quite a few. Um, what was the last one? Man? I think we listened to most of Simple Man. Yeah. Okay, so Simple Man um, didn't have any percussion in it. It was mostly just guitar, bass, and, and flute. And then there was a vocal piece at the very end, you know, which is self-titled Simple Man. Yeah. And so what I did with that was I spent a lot of time um, using alternate tunings for some of the songs. And when I do alternate tunings, you, you, have, you have to go into a whole different uh, frame of mind of, of using strings, drone strings, um, coming up with you know, interesting chord structures but yet it still has to play into the part of, of how's the flute going to adapt to this? What's it going to do with the flute? How's it going to change? Because the modes that you're using with the flute, um, to me, the Native American flute becomes like a chameleon. You know, it, it shapes with, with well, you know, when you, when you take theory, there's a thing called a circle of fifths. So you connect minor modes, sharps, flats, you know, Sure. Quarters, eighths, you know, just different, you know, shapes of, of, of notes. And so you want to keep it within that, but then also you let the voice of the flute kind of take hold of whatever structure that you're doing, you know, with, with chord progressions or, or, you know, lines that you're, that you're drawing, you know, going from maybe a minor to a major and um, letting it just feel its way through, you know, if that makes any sense. Sure. But, um, you know, you really have to have an open mind and, and you really have to listen, you know, when you're doing it and, and making sure that, you know, it just really has a good flow, a really, really nice groove to it. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, so what role... Um, as you're developing this music and, uh, you know, clearly, you know, a lot of it is inspired by um, 
theory, you know, the circle of fifths is understanding of the flute through the pentatonic scale. How does Western uh, or, or sort of the the Western notation system uh, interfere perhaps with your music? Do you write your songs down? Is there tablature for the flute or is it sort of just the base of understanding and then you work with It's kind of just the, the, base, the base of understanding. I mean, I've, I've seen transcriptions of, of my music and, you know, it, it, you know, the time signatures, you know, that we're creating these into, um, you know, you always want to try to not be redundant in what, what you're doing, you know, because I mean, things sometimes, I mean, in pop music, you know, majority of chord progressions that are used in pop music are like two to three chords. Very repetitive. You know, it's yes, very repetitive. <laughs> yeah. And you don't want to do that, you know, with, with the flute, you know, you kind of want to always expand and, and create space, you know, you want to create um, a mood, you know, and that's, you know, you're speaking without words, you know, you're making somebody feel, you know, something without words, you know, and it's basically through the melody and, and through the, uh, the, uh, the progression of, of how the song is. And time signatures play a big part of that, you know, whether it's fast, whether it's slow, whether it's, you know, very, very soothing, you know, whether it's very aggressive, you know, however you want it to be. Right. You know, all of that is, is um, you know, creating a feeling and a language, you know, all its own. And it allows the musicians to communicate with each yeah. other, to come to you that know, You play off idea. of one another, you know, and everything, and, you know, it all, you know, just falls into place. Absolutely. Um, so in terms of uh, Native American flute music um, at, as an instrument and as a, a culture perhaps around the instrument, the music, the culture around the music, um, you know, in a lot of genres you have sort of the same tunes get played again and again. You know, in, in jazz you have the big book, in, in bluegrass you have sort of a, a pretty set canon that, that people know and, and bring to the table. In the world of Native American flute music, is it just um, individual artists writing their own songs and bringing it to the table, or is there a, 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 perhaps a, a culture or a canon that everybody kind of relates to, songs that everybody knows? Well, I think in Native American music, um, you have your traditional set songs, you know, like, say, for instance, uh, Zuni Sunrise. You know, it's a common song that was played amongst a lot of different flute makers or flute players. You know, our Carlos Nakai did it. Um, there's um, the older uh, flute players, you know, that were, you know, Doc Neg Cueva. Um, you had Howard Rayner. Um, you had um, Red Ute, who was Eddie Box Sr. Um, you had um, Sonny Tonikov um, White from. Uh, Oklahoma, you know, you had a lot of these old flute players, you know, and they were very familiar you know, with with um, the traditional songs. Kevin Locke, you know, from the Lakota Nation, uh, Robert Tree Cody. Um, you had a lot of these guys that that knew these traditional songs, and they would play them, you know, in their live performances. And you know, Nakai, you know, recorded, you know, Azuni Sunrise and. And, um, you know, there's prayer songs, you know, there's healing songs, there's, 
you know, songs of meditation and um, songs of love, songs of compassion, you know, songs of, of a loved one passing. You know, there, there are so many different meanings and different expressions of uh, how a flute player would approach uh, creating, you know, a flute song. And uh, courting songs, you know, the Lakota Nation, you know, the Plains Indians, um, even Navajo love songs, um, Zuni songs, Pueblo, Hopi, I mean, Apache, you know, there's so many different, you know, types and, and genres of, of the native flute, you know, using a five hole, a four hole, six hole, um, you know, three hole flutes. You know, there's just so many different different facets, and I think what connects all of those is um, either you know the social songs that are played, or someone hears somebody doing one thing, you know, they'll maybe um, change a little, you know, around and add their own little thing to it. Get inspired. Um, be by inspired, yes. The and, and then the traditional songs, you know, are main. You know, they remain traditional. You know, songs are not changed in any shape or form. Right. Um, you know, we were talking about the Hopi Flute Society up on Hopi. You know, they have old traditional songs that are played only during the time when the Kokopelli deities, you know, come around, you know, during the home dances in the summer. Or, you know, you have the maiden songs, uh, you have the sunrise songs, you know, you have um, songs for harvest or birth and, and a lot of different meanings. And, and these songs that are played, you know, amongst the Hopi people, you know, they're kept, you know, within the village. They're not played outside of, of the village or anything like that because they're considered very sacred, you know. And then, you know, like you, you have your improvisation, you know, people just get up and, you know, feel inspired or something and, you know, they just go with it. But um, there's just so many different, different, um, genres of music you know within you know native you know we're, I mean, we're just talking just native flute music i mean there's drum songs and rattle songs bird songs sundance songs bear dance songs you know songs hard to define different yeah different genres, occasions right you know people don't realize how big you know or how much music there is amongst you know native american music i mean i'm just talking southwest right now right you go north, east, you know, west, whatever. I mean, there's just so much. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things uh, that you uh, would later go on to do is, is actually start building these flutes. Yeah. So how did the transition go? Did you come off the road before you started building flutes? or, or Yeah, we had decision taken a break um, between recordings. And, you know, I'd always been curious on how, you know the flute worked. You know how how the tone was, and and um, playing with with Kelvin. Um, you know, my, I was always wanting to you know figure out different ways of, of expression. You know, for for you know a flute musician to be able to play with accompaniment, whether it was piano, whether it was guitar, whether it was just percussion. You know, Certainly. and flute or bass and flute. And even experimenting with harmonica and flute, saxophone and flute, you know, there's all these different ideas, you know, that I would have. And, and um, the only way I would figure out how it would work was by, by making them, you know. So doing it yourself. Yeah, just like from the very beginning. Yeah. You got to get out on the road, get it done. 
So, you know, I started just experimenting, you know, my garage and, and creating the instrument. And, you know, the first ones I did, you know, were, were straight through, you know, they weren't like the standard flute, you know, with the block or the bird on top, you know, they were just like a little notch, kind of like a cana flute from South America. Mm -hmm. And so I just got what wood I had available and I figured it out. I looked at the flute and I thought, well, okay, you know, I could figure this out. And so I did it and, you know, just through trial and error, um, started creating it and, and then after creating it and getting down the basics, then it came time for, well, I can make it sound better. I can make more clarity. I can make it to where it's not as wispy as, you know, some flutes were that you had more wind and you could hear a person blowing. It'd be very, very wispy. Sure. You know, and I, my whole thing was clarity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I got to the point to where I was able to make it sound even louder and, you can make it sound really hard. You can make it sound really soft. You know, you can do all these different things. So, you know, it was um, it was a process. You know, but but you know, after years of doing it and creating it, you know, I went from making single flutes to making drone flutes. And you know, the drone flute thing was you know strictly by experimentation. I mean. I don't think there was very many people at the time when I started making drone flutes that were making drone flutes. Could you define you know, a, a drone flute? A drone flute is two flutes in one, which basically you have one flute on one side, which is six, five hole, six hole. And the first notes have to match, completely match. Otherwise, there's a little wavering. It has to sound like one note. And then when you lift off your finger to form the second note, then the drone note kicks in you know, which is basically the lowest note of, of the flute. And then when you blow a little harder, you can kick up to an octave higher, which would be the highest note of a flute. Yeah. So you have that five notes, that five scale, you know, notation. So you had, so you had um, your lowest and your highest note and everything in between, you know, would basically match what that drone, you know, would sound like, and it would give it, you know, a whole different sound. And I mean, Drone flutes have been around since the time of the Mayans and the Aztecs, even going back to the Egyptian Roman Empire, you know, 300 BC. You know, they were putting two reeds together from the Nile and creating, you know, experimenting with, with dual sounds, you know, dual tones right. and everything. Then the Mayans and the Aztecs were making clay flutes that were multi-chambered instruments, um, maybe a high pitch whistle on the side or a bird whistle and and then a deep um, sounding flute, and then a, a mid mid range, you know, sort of um, tone, you know, that they were creating out of clay flutes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it just came from you know inspired being inspired by you know wanting to create more sound. Definitely, and and you know putting that pentatonic scale on yeah. the bass note, you know, yep. it allows for a variety of different. Um, sort of sounds and modes. Oh, yeah. I was wondering if you could give us an example of maybe uh, sort of the diversity in sound, perhaps the, the different kinds of yeah. expression that you could get from just a, a, a few small tweaks. So this is really interesting. So we're talking like a drone flute. So you have two flutes in one. One on one side plays like a standard flute. The other side plays that one drone note, whether it's low drone or a high drone. So if you play the two together, I'll play the, the single note of the flute first. 
So the bottom with the two together sounds like one note. It's a single flute by itself, both of them together. So when I release that first finger, the first hole, So you have this second note, and you have the drone, which plays, you know, the bottom. Then if I blow a little harder, I could go an octave higher. So it sounds the same as the highest note, two notes in one. That's what you have. Wow. Well, I imagine that uh, building <laughs> one of these to make those notes sound they have to exactly, be perfect. They have to yeah. be perfect. Yep. And if you make a mistake, it's just firewood. <laughs> <laughs> Start again. Yeah. Um, so, how when you first started building these flutes, you st first started building them for yourself. Obviously, like something like this would be very uh, uh, calculated and and making sure that all the measurements are right, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, so is that the same for the, the single chamber flutes or the... Yeah, yeah, it's the same with the single chamber. I mean, you know, we're, we're creating... Um, you, you really want, for me, it, you know, tone is everything. You know, so you have to have really good tone. You have to have a really good sound. And, you know, when you're creating a flute, say, for instance, you, want, you have it really wispy sounding, so it sounds like this. But if I move the block back, I can make it a little sharper. So you hear, you know, the wind a little bit, you know, in that. But when you are making it to where, you know, the wind, you know, the pressure of, of how you're blowing um, doesn't uh, become more of a, like a, a swooshing sound you know, you get more of a clear, clear note. And you're you know, all about that clear. Yeah, you, that you know, it's just the clarity is, is to me, is really important. Um, the old traditional flutes, they were very wispy sounding, you know, because they were made um, with two pieces of wood, like a tree branch split in half. Then the inside, you know, was either carved out or burned out with hot embers from a fire. And then they would put it back together with tree sap. Then they would tie it off with leather straps all the way across. So if you... Look at old photos of, of flutes, like from a collection, like maybe the Smithsonian or something. You always see strands of hide tied every so far apart, you know. Sure. That's basically the clamps holding it together. Mm -hmm. You know, because tree sap would only last so, so long. Because, I mean, you know, you got so much moisture blowing, you know, through the flute. I mean, your body temperature is, what, 90... 98.6, yeah. So that's pretty hot, you know, with, especially with moisture coming out of your out of your body. Uh -huh. So that moisture has to dissipate somewhere. So it would either dissipate through the walls of, of the wood or it would just flow through. And then whatever's left, you know, you, you have this leftover condensation and everything. So it's going to seep into the wood. And you have that enough times, you're, you're basically your food is, is going to, yeah. you know, fall apart. 
you know, if it's not put, put together very well. And so, you know, the old flutes, they tied all those strands along the body so that would hold the flute together and you wouldn't have as much um, seepage, you know, through it. And I'm sure, you know, it, it all, somebody figured it out through trial and error, you know, that the best way we can do this is mm -hmm. do it. Or, or some of the old flutes would split, you know, after a while from the moisture because they weren't maybe treated or sealed inside or maybe they were still kind of green and then dried out a little bit or something. Sure. So, you know, there's just a lot of different factors, you know, that go in, but moisture plays a big part of how long, you know, a flute's going to last. Definitely. Um, and, and you mentioned this uh, before we started doing this taping uh, about, um, you know, potentially using the human body to, uh, to measure these flutes out. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was so many different theories, you know, I mean, going back to, you know, the time of our, our ancestors, the Anasazi, um, I was told, you know, through uh, an old flute maker that, you know, using the hand and using the arm, the length of the arm played a big part on how, you know, the notes were formed and shaped, you know, using a finger's width between each hole, uh, whether it was four or five, six hole flute that you know the finger measurement between each hole you know would would be consistent and that's how you know you were able to you know create you know more or less close to a pentatonic scale you know by doing that and then maybe a measurement of a whole hands width to the very first hole and then you know however long you wanted it to be from the stem from the block so you know that that's the old you know the old method you know of creating them now of course, you know, you just measure it off and, you know, you know how far Get the, the holes out. need to be out. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but I mean, again, you know, if you want to talk about old, old um, tunings, you know, of, of them, you know, there was really no tunings, you know, it was basically however people felt, you know, that the flutes were made and everything. So, you know, that, that played a big part, you know, in how the sound would be. Lakota flutes were five-hole flutes. Plains flutes were five-hole flutes. Um, Six-hole flutes didn't really come around until maybe um, European influence, you know, during the time after, you know, the 1400s and uh, going into the 15th, 16th century, 17th century. Um, the 18th century, I think, really started to change, you know, because there was more Europeans coming to the Americas and, and you know, their, their influence, the theory of music, of Western music and things like that. So, you know, they were taught to maybe native people that were, that maybe had a talent, you know, and that they saw and they were more fascinated by the music than anything. Uh, there was a, a lady by the name of Frances Densmore, who was an ethnomusicologist for the Smithsonian from 1910 to about 1932, 36. Mm -hmm. And she basically recorded any music that Native American people were making. So she traveled around the country with the medicine machine, horseback, buggy, train. Uh, she hiked into thick wooded areas, you know, to see a medicine man or a medicine woman to record a song. And she was the only maybe white person that was able to attend a ceremony, you know, because they knew that she was, you know, doing something of importance by recording it. And so, you know, the term was, you know, people singing into, you know, the can or the flange, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, and she would use the old wax cylinders and she would hand crank and, and then she would take them back and catalog them at the Smithsonian. She would transpose 
um, the rhythms and the patterns on the sheet music so American composers could use them in their, you know, creating, um, you know, new works of orchestrations, you know, things like that. So, you know, she played a big vital part in, in um, preserving a lot of music. And so um, as the years went on, uh, I think the Smithsonian, somebody went back to the archives and they wanted to pull out one of the um, wax cylinders and found out they were deteriorating. So they had to digitize as much as they could. Oh, and, wow. you know, Smithsonian Folkways, you know, did a great job. And, and you can listen, you can go on smithsonianfolkways.org and listen to some of the old recordings. You can hear the crackling, you know, of, of the wax cylinders and, and things like that. And I think the first Native American flute song that was recorded was 1932 or 34 from a gentleman from Montana. Mm. You know, very simplistic in, in his delivery of how he played the song. And, you know, he thought out the notes that he would choose to play and, and everything. And, you know, there's, there's just so much history, you know, that's, that's based, you know, around a very simple instrument. Absolutely. Absolutely, and and who knows, you know, the sort of unsaid or or untold uh, influence that those recordings would go on to oh, have yeah. over the course of the entire you know world's mm -hmm. music. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, you're making these flutes today. What uh, what are these flutes made of? The flutes I was doing today were made out of river cane. So. I had come up with an idea of, of resources. I mean, wood is getting more expensive, you know, now, you know, price of things are going up. So I had gotten a couple pieces of rubricane from a friend and um, he wanted me to make, you know, see if I can make some flutes out of them. And so I had a, a guy that um, sent me some stuff from Florida send me some cane and uh, I thought you know what what could I use you know what could what what could I uh, create out of these and how could I go about doing it and again you know I just figured out you know through through seeing some old flutes that were old Hopi flutes and I actually repaired old a ceremonial flute that the Museum of Northern Arizona had in their collection and so I repaired it, and I was looking at it, and I'm thinking, oh, this would be kind of cool, you know, to do it. And you could tell it was carved by a knife, you know, it sure. was, and the holes and everything. And it had a gourd at the very end, you know, like a sunflower. And so they, you know, it was a ceremonial flute. It had some eagle feathers tied to it. And um, I repaired it and, you know, gave it back to, you know, the guy, the gentleman had brought it over from the museum. And so I just got the idea, you know, nobody's really making cane flutes right you know i've run into a few guys you know that were doing them and i asked them you know how did you go about doing this and you know sometimes you know they won't tell you what they're doing <laughs> secrets of the yeah. trade yeah so i figured it out you know and i started getting cane and and i was invited to do a um flute making workshop down in the yavapai apache reservation and so a gentleman uh, by the name of don decker had invited me down and I went and harvested some river cane and, and I made some very small flutes for a bunch of kids, you know, in the community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was something that, you know, it was a summer program. So I just started, started from there. And then I kind of uh, was playing music a little bit more. So I kind of, you know, put it on the, 
on the shelf for a little bit, and then I came back to it. And the first ones I made were basically really um, different than the ones I do now. And so I started um, thinking about how can I make it simple to where people could actually do a workshop. Right. And so I just kind of, you know, went from there and, and started making them the way I make them now and was able to make them a little faster, make them to where they sound good, you know, and everything. So people who take my flute classes, you know, they they see a plain piece of river cane and then, you know, it's really funny seeing the expressions on their faces when they hear the first note being played, yeah. you know, out of something that they, you know, were helping shape and, and, and form. So... And which to them was just yeah. a plant you picked up. Yeah, just exactly. A few minutes or yep. a little bit before. Yeah. So, you know, it just all went from there. And, and this is what I do today. <laughs> so you've gotten off the road. You're not uh, you're not touring right now. Well, um, I'm, I'm kind of on and off. Not completely. <laughs> <laughs> so you're on and off the road. Um, do you, Where do you teach these flute classes? Um, I do a class five days a week at Clear Sky Resorts, which is over in Valley. And it's like a, um, an eco-dome glamping you know, resort. Sure. And then I do them at the Heard Museum. I uh, get commissioned to, to do some flute classes for students you know, from the surrounding communities, Gila River, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Te'odom, uh, Maricopa, um, tribes that are down there in the valley. Or I'll go up to Crazy Horse up in South Dakota. Um, I'll go, you know, to the Southwest Museum in Tucson, uh, the Petroglyph Museum in, in North, North Phoenix. Um, wherever, you know, people that want to, you know, do the workshops, I'll, you know, go there. Like and the Grand you spend Canyon. a couple of days. Yeah. You know, spend a couple of days in Two the or Grand three Canyon. days, you know, mm -hmm. and do things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, thank you so much. For, for doing this interview, for coming to the Grand Canyon, for, for showing off your flute making, your playing, your instrumentation, and, and telling your story here, you know, even when the, the weather doesn't maybe cooperate yeah. with the kind of program that we want to give. Um, for our audience at home, I wonder if you have one final takeaway or, or one thing after listening to this that maybe you would like people to walk away and, and remember from having heard this. Um, I think preservation of cultural um, instruments is very important. Um, preserving the culture is very important. Um, I think no matter what culture you come from, um, language is important. Uh, the history, um, learning and knowing who you are in this world and wearing it like a badge of honor you know, your, your culture. Um, some people search a lifetime to find out who they really are. Um, sometimes you discover it through music. Sometimes you discover it through literature. You know, sometimes you discover it um, through lost family members, loved ones. Um, sometimes you just discover it on your own. And... Um, to me, all of us are indigenous to this world and this planet. We all have a purpose and we all have uh, the power, you know, to preserve um, what is here for, for us to preserve and to preserve for the next generation and the generation after that. Um, 
we all are indigenous. We all walk under the same sun. You know, we walk under the same earth. We all live under the same sky. And um, to me, music is medicine. You know, music is a blessing. And um, it brings people together. You know, it, it, it breaks down walls of, and barriers of, of race and color and language. When you play a note, and it's something that connects with another human being. Um, that, to me, is probably the first step to a first the first step in communication. You know, with people that are maybe different, but maybe not so different. Yeah. You know, music is is a very powerful tool, and um, I'm I'm just glad to be a part of it. I mean, I'm just a little little so bit we. part of it of it in a very you know very big world that we live in Certainly. and coming to places like this, like the Grand Canyon, you know, to share, you know, with people from all walks of life, from, from countries of different countries around the globe, you know, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I thank you guys for letting me be a part of it. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming and, and thank you for um, being a part of everything here at Grand Canyon. We really appreciate it. Grand Canyon Speaks is a program hosted by Grand Canyon National Park and the Grand Canyon Conservancy. A special thanks to Aaron White for the theme music. This recording reflects the personal experiences of tribal members and do not encompass the views of their tribal nation or that of the national park. To learn more about Grand Canyon First Voices, visit www.nps.gov grca. Here at Grand Canyon National Park, we are on the ancestral homelands of the 11 associated tribes of the Grand Canyon. These being the Havasupai tribe, the Hopi tribe, the Wallapai tribe, the Kaibab Paiute Indians, the Las Vegas Paiute Indians, the Moapa Paiute Indians, the Navajo Nation, the Paiute Indian tribe of Utah, the San Juan Southern Paiute tribe, the Pueblo of Zuni, and the Yavapai Apache Nation. <laughs>